Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest today is John Mitchell. He's a professor of social anthropology at the Sussex Center for Migration Research. Uh, we're going to talk about what he calls the anthropology of religion. So welcome, John. Thank you for coming. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and for giving me this opportunity to talk about something which is very close to my heart and to my work. Just a slight correction. I am loosely associated with the Migration Studies Unit, but my main base here in Sussex is in in the Department of Anthropology. So what's the difference between, let's say, biblical archaeology versus anthropological view of of religion? Okay, so that's that's quite a big question. The answer is quite a lot. I mean, the form of anthropology that I work with, which is uh, social cultural anthropology tends to work on the uh, the contemporary rather than the historical. So it's moving away from that kind of digging into the past and that sort of, I guess, what do you call it, Indiana Jones kind of stereotype of the of anthropological work about, you know, dig, digging into the past and digging, digging into the evolution of religion. My work and the work of my colleagues in the social and cultural anthropology of, of religion is very much looking at contemporary religious processes throughout the world um, and really trying to understand different religious practices, different religious beliefs as they are enacted and lived through people's experience in the present. Okay. Um, what are some examples of uh, you know, anthropological situations that you've studied? And you know, what was your goal with the study? And you know, what was the outcome? The one, one example maybe that sticks in your mind. What example that sticks in my mind? Well, I mean, the main bit of research, I've been working for a long time, kind of since the 1990s, really, looking at political and religious processes in the island of Malta in the mid- middle of the Mediterranean. I ended up working there through a variety of kind of coincidences, I guess, in my kind of early career, university career, and then into the PhD program, which I can, I can talk about if you want. But uh, my main interest there to start with was thinking about questions of, of, of politics and political identity. I worked there in the early 90s, and it was partly because I was became interested in kind of interstitial places, places that were kind of culturally in between. Uh, Malta is slap bang in the middle of the Mediterranean, so between Europe and North Africa, the kind of Near East. Early 90s was at the time of the, the first Gulf Wars. Uh, Malta was emerging as a kind of non-aligned place which might have some potential to kind of broke these differences, these cultural differences that were starting to emerge. This was a time when people like Huntington was starting to write about the kind of clash of civilizations in relation to that 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 relationship between kind of the West, however we configure that, and the kind of Near East, and thinking about that as a kind of irreconcilable type of type of difference. And it struck me that Malta, as a place which had influences from both sides, might be a place where you could kind of unpick and think through kind of some of the similarities of what was going on there. So I went to work there with that in mind and thinking about these questions of identity and political alignment. By the time I'd got there, Malta had started to put forward an application to join the European Union, but nevertheless maintained a kind of sense of difference. And I traced, and this was in my first 
book called Ambivalent Europeans traced really a set of political debates around the future of Walter and where that was taking us. But it became very clear to me that actually political debates were also religious debates, that the whole kind of prompt, both the promise of European accession and the kind of perceived threat of European accession were couched in concerns about religion and concerns about traditional religious practices in Malta. Malta is a certainly was then, less so now, probably um, a kind of deeply Roman Catholic country. And part of the argument for going into Europe was that kind of Europe needed Malta as a kind of religious saviour, if you like. But then on the other hand, there were concerns about the kind of erosive effects of Europeanization on traditional Maltese life. So the effects of... What, what does that mean? What, what are the effects? Like, what are some things in traditional Maltese life that appear to have been changed? Um, well, particularly people's orientation to the family, that was a big concern that would entry into Europe lead to a breakdown of the traditional Maltese family. Would kind of Northern European moralities take over? Would there be, you know, a rise in, in kind of extramarital sexual activity? Would Malta be forced to take on a divorce law, to take on an abortion law? All of these things which were kind of associated with Northern European modernity. So there was a concern with kind of questions of morality, but also questions of the effect that it might have on traditional religious practices, whether people would need to uh, kind of move away from the kinds of ways in which they had traditionally been um, celebrating their religious lives, and would that become eroded? One of the things which I looked at in great detail was the phenomenon in Malta. It's not it's a not uncommon practice in kind of Southern European kind of Mediterranean Catholicism of saints feasts, annual saints feasts. Um, so I worked very closely with people who were organising these saints feasts and thinking about these saints feasts. And that was one of the things that people were worried was going to kind of disappear, to get eroded, that people would no longer be interested in the local, be no longer be interested in their own saints feasts, their own, you know, celebrating their own religious identity in those contexts, if there were all these distractions coming from coming from Europe. Well, what were some of the clashes, though, in particular? What are some of the particular maybe religious rights or things that were affected that they could no longer do or, you know, societally felt pressured not to do? Well, in the event, not much of that actually happened in the end. Actually, religious festivals kind of continued to be practiced and so on. It did have an effect, though, on other areas of, of, of social life. So, for example, Malta did introduce and have a referendum around the divorce law in, I think, 2006, and introduced divorce for the first time. Um, so that was a kind of erosive, I guess, erosive effect on traditional Catholic values within within Maltese society. As I said, there was a great concern about the effects of kind of Northern European ideas, moralities, Europeanization, modernization, and so on. Uh, in the end, in fact, the kind of biggest influence, I think, probably on Maltese society came from the other end, which was that once Malta became part of the European Union, it became a place that was taking in large numbers of refugees, migrants from sub-Saharan Africa. So this became a kind of new kind of crisis, not necessarily a relig religious crisis, but certainly a, a kind of social social crisis of, you know, how to cope with you know, large numbers of you know, sub-Saharan African people, you know, arriving on Maltese shores. And actually, again, in a kind of paradoxical way, in certain parts of Maltese society, this, again, retrenched Maltese values and Maltese religious values and actually strengthened them with the sense that actually, you know, these people, these migrants, these refugees, you know, should be looked after and should be looked after by church institutions. So pointing to... Well, well isn't it the government that's saying come in, but then they want what the church to take care of these people? Uh, well, the government wasn't saying come in. The government was quite kind of found this quite 
kind of problematic and the various moments where Malta felt felt kind of abandoned by the rest of rest of Europe as the, as what they perceived as kind of waves of, of, of migrants were coming. I mean, the government set up kind of holding holding institutions and kind of detention centres effectively. But what what emerged in the church was was a much more much more of an emphasis on kind of hospitality, on looking after people, on taking care of migrants' rights, of welcoming them welcoming them as refugees, finding places for them to move on to within Europe rather than simply, you know, kind of sending them back, which which tended to be more of the, the kind of attitude of the, of the government itself. So what you know, the timeline on when refugees come on, how soon they integrate, how soon they, I don't know, engage in certain activities, whether the society to see that they're actually assimilated. Are there any metrics that is anyone keeping that tells you that, all right, it was successful, it was not successful, this migration? Uh, there will be metrics. I mean, generally it is, I mean, Malta has become a kind of holding place. I mean, this is the way that Kind of migration operates within within the European Union. Once a migrant comes to the European Union, European Union, there's the idea that they should be then they should be dealt with kind of in the place of arrival. Very often they're trying to get to go kind of go further north, so migrants will want to travel on and travel further up into up into Italy or up into France or up into Germany or the UK. But they get kind of held in Malta. So the idea of kind of assimilation isn't necessarily part of that that kind of journey. That said. There are increasing examples of, you know, African, and it's mostly male African migrants, uh, you know, marrying into Maltese families and becoming part of kind of multiracial, multiracial couples, you know, changing the dynamics of kind of family life in that country. I mean, does anyone monitor people that come into another country to see again how they assimilate or they just come in, there's a bit of news about it, and then whatever happens later, good or bad repercussions, you know, that, that may appear in the news, but no one really studies and shepherds people once they get to a country so they can actually be set up for success. Like, are there any new countries ever do that? The countries they, they let them in and say, good luck. <laughs> I mean, yes, I mean, people, people do. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's a, there's a differentiation in terms of de- dealing with different types of migrants. So refugees would be dealt, dealt with precisely in those terms. So there, there would be, you know, institutions which are dedicated towards trying to integrate them, trying to assimilate them into in, into the mainstream society. For less regular migrants, let's say kind of, you know, we could call them illegal immigrants or, or, or whatever, it's obviously much more precarious. I mean, people are tracing and tracking the numbers that are coming, but quite often when people arrive, they'll go into a detention centre, it may be an open centre, it may be a closed centre, and then they start to, you know, send out feelers for, for, for doing various types of work. In Malta, it's fairly common for Sub-Saharan African migrants to work in the in the construction trade, to work also in farming on the land. In well, that's what I noticed. In like in the U.S., you know, in this state, you'll have everyone that owns a nail salon that is Vietnamese. Yeah. In this state, everyone that owns a convenience store seems to be Arab. And, you know, mm-hmm. it seems people cluster in these in these industries. You know, I I, would, I don't think that comes from uh, the government or anything like that. I think it just comes from like other people that have come before them, and they find these communities, and they're like okay, we can get you a job doing this, which is what everyone else is doing. And that's why they tend to cluster in these industries. That's my guess. What, what do you see? Yeah, no, that, that, that's absolutely true. And it does tend to be a kind of serial process so that people will have contacts in a particular industry that then get passed on to them so, what, so that when they arrive, they'll be able to kind of slot into a particular position, whether it's in construction or in kind of manual labor of one one type, type or another. I mean, broadly speaking, that is thought of as kind of problematic by the government institutions because it's kind of allowing 
you know, migrants who aren't really supposed to be, be there to kind of stay on. But very often within those industries themselves, there's a sense that actually these are good workers, they work hard, and they're kind of saying that they're dispensable is a harsh way of putting it, but but there is that kind of tendency to, to say, well, okay, you know, I don't, I don't have so much of a responsibility for this worker because they're, you know, kind of irregularly, they're here illegally kind of anyway. So, if, you know, if, if they go or if they turn out not to be as successful for me as I want them to, you know, that there will be others who, who will come along. So it places, it places those migrants in a pretty precarious kind of kind of position as they're trying to kind of build forwards and build themselves into a new life. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So how does the religious side interplay? You know, the, the people that are migrants, whether legal or illegal, refugees, when they come into a country and they have a certain faith, that's different from the country they're going to. What happens? What is there friction, or like where do they settle? Um, I think I think there can be friction. But I mean, I think you know it, it depends on the particular particular context that you're talking about. Um, I mean, very often you know migrant groups will have their own churches. They'll have their own sort of religious organisations, religious associations, religious religious kind of sets of ideas, and will you know kind of carry them carry them with them. And there's a, a lot of anthropological work that is done precisely on that, the kind of ways in which, let's say, kind of, you know, indigenous religious processes are carried kind of in in migration. And there are various, you know, kind of case studies when there are case studies of, you know, kind of voodoo in, in, in New York, forms of, you know, kind of African religion in various parts of you know, South America, North America, but also in, in Europe that anthropologists have worked on looking at how the kind of maintaining of a particular religious outlook among a migrant group can give them a sense of, of, of identity, can give them a sense of collectivity, can help them out in, in, in their own perception of the ways in which their world is, is kind of developing. And you, you get with that, you know, kind of transnational flows of religious, religious ideas and religious experience, religious feeling. Okay. What are some research questions that you're working on right now that you want to find the answer to? I've been just kind of asking you whatever, but um, you know, I should have asked you. What, tell me what you're working on heavily. Okay. Currently, I'm working on a project called Pilgrimomics, which is a kind of clumsy portmanteau combination of pilgrimage and economics. And it's a project that I'm working on with a colleague here at Sussex, Raminda Kaur, and some postdoc researchers as well. And it's looking at pilgrimage across five different faith groups from the UK and particularly from the city of Birmingham in the UK, which is a, a traditionally kind of industrial city that is quite culturally plural, quite multicultural, um, has representation from a number of different groups who have migrated into the city over the last oh, 150 years or so. So from Irish to uh, Jewish migrants to uh, you know, South Asian migrants, Caribbean migrants, and so on. And we're looking at the links between different faith groups, like Catholic, Hindu, Islamic, Jewish, and Sikh, and their 
pilgrimage journeys away from Birmingham and to prominent shrines elsewhere in the world. We're interested particularly in the kind of the economic dimension of, the, of pilgrimage, and that really is everything from you know how people are funding their trips to other to pilgrimage, uh, how people are funding and providing money for shrines, be they in the UK or back in other parts of the world, be that the development of tourist agencies that are there in order to provide the kind of infrastructures for pilgrims, but also then the the kind of infrastructures and side economies of pilgrimage sites themselves. So my part of the project is looking at Catholicism. I said I've worked previously in in, in Malta on, on Catholicism. And I'm looking at migrants from Birmingham to shrines, one in Lourdes in France and one in Santiago de Compostela. The Lord's side tends to be a place where Catholics go and it's very very much associated with kind of healing. So uh, large numbers of what are described as kind of sick pilgrims will go each year, accompanied by, you know, able bodied and, and, and so on. Not necessarily in the hope of getting an miraculous cure, although that is that is a kind of feature of the of the shrine. But more often than not, it's part of the kind of part of people's your know, spiritual way of coming to terms with their condition and so on. The Santiago Pilgrimage is slightly different. That tends to be one where people are kind of walking and walking long distances to get there. Um, it's much more, much less oriented around the destination. It's much more about the journey. And whereas Lourdes is, you could describe it as being about kind of health and well-being, the Santiago Pilgrimage is much more about kind of spirituality and well-being, and is part of that kind of well-being. You know what? You know what would be really challenging for you or anybody physically. And I saw a documentary on Ethiopia, and they have like this church on the top of this mountain. <laughs> You yeah, climb up there to go to church. It's dangerous as like it looks like. And then there's another one in a cave. There's like Lalabella where you go down hundreds of feet into the ground. And, you know, if you were to study pilgrimages in Ethiopia, it seems like even going to church for the day is a pilgrimage in itself or a journey for, for a lot of these people. It's interesting. Yeah, no, it is absolutely interesting. And, that, you know, that's not that's not kind of uncommon. And, then, you know, part of the walking to Santiago is... is precisely kind of enacting the, the kind of difficulty or the challenges of finding your way way to get there. So yeah, so in, in that kind of context, what what I'm interested in is the kinds of, in a way, the kinds of economic exchanges of, of, of kind of reciprocity and gift giving that you get along the way, along the, along the walk. There was a film a few years ago called Calls the Way uh, with Martin Sheen, which demonstrates this quite nicely. I think it's a, a guy who starts to walk on a pilgrimage to Santiago because it's, his son had started to walk and had been killed. And it's the story of how he meets up with any kind of assortment of various different people who are motivated to do this walk in for various different reasons. But they establish a relationship and establish relationships of exchange, relationships of reciprocity, relationships of gift giving kind of along the way. And people help them out, you know, financially and, and otherwise. And so that's part of what we're kind of interested in, what I'm kind of interested in, in in relation to that. But also the kinds of businesses that you get setting up along the way, businesses that are helping out with, you know, transporting people's luggage, their belongings from one place to the other so that people can walk without a, as a backpack, you know, cafes, hostels, etc. along the way. And that's a focus as well of the research in Lourdes. So looking at how a particular, you know, relatively small town in the Pyrenees has developed into this kind of major kind of travel destination, pilgrimage travel destination over the years and how that's led to development of a particular type. And so have you been able to go to Hajj? Are you out? And have you those those are huge events, right? Millions. Hey, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be allowed to go to go on the Hajj, but um, 
one of our researchers. So we've got a research fellow who's working on Islamic is on Islamic pilgrimage. She went to Mecca, but as part of the Umrah rather than the Hajj. The Hajj has got very complicated to get to participate in, and very and actually very very expensive um, over re- over recent years. It used to be the case that, but in any case, the numbers are limited, and the numbers are limited by the Saudi government. Um, and it used to be the case that there were a range of different travel agencies who would arrange, who would organise the Hajj for you. But it's now been completely kind of nationalised by the Saudi government. And so there's a lottery to get to get onto it. You know, it's it, it's very expensive and quite difficult. So she wasn't able to get on on the Hajj. How much is it, by the way? Do you know? Um, well, she was talking about up to twenty twenty thousand pounds sterling. Wow, one uh, person. Yeah, for one person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yes, no, I mean, yeah, quite quite substantial and quite a substantial investment. Obviously, within Islam, it is one of the pillars of Islam that everybody who can is supposed to go on the Hajj at least one time during their life. But that then becomes, at that scale, it becomes quite a substantial substantial financial in- investment. I believe it's part of a kind of shift in Saudi kind of economic policy, trying to move away from a kind of an over-dependence on petrochemical to become a you know more tourism travel kind of heritage related so it's part of that kind of post post petrochemical kind of era for them and how they see themselves developing as a as a country so what i mean what have you found that's interesting about the economies that are around these pilgrimage sites well that that that, that they're vibrant that they come and go they they include a range of kind of official and unofficial style of it of economies that you know there are kind of white black and gray economies associated with pilgrimage if you like so that you know there might be official payments to a shrine, but then around that there are more unofficial economies which arise out of you know either accommodation or souvenirs to a certain extent. Quite often, so the- what about um what about if at a pilgrimage site the beliefs of the local people are different from the people that come to the pilgrimage site? How have you seen that reconciled? I would try yeah try to think about it. I'm not sure where it would be, but you know I, I don't know what. Let's say there's a site again that's uh, important to Catholics, but the people that live there are all, um, you know, Muslim or they're secular. You know, how do they do they just for economic sake do they say, all right, we'll support this this pilgrimage in the salt community around it because of the economics? I think yes, I think that can that that can happen. Um, I mean, that's is is the case in relation to Sikhism. I was just say one of our researchers is looking at Sikh pilgrimage to Amritsar, but also another another pilgrimage site which is actually in Pakistan. Pakistan is obviously Muslim majority country, but they have organised tours, and again, this it, it's kind of set up and it, it, it's you know it's quite expensive. But you have to go and join one of these organised tours to this. Sikh holy site, the Sikh pilgrimage site, which exists within Pakistan territory. So they've kind of set up an infrastructure to allow that happen, to journey into, I guess, what you might describe as kind of you know, Muslim-majority context. You also have the kind of the obverse of that. In Lourdes, for example, there are a number of non-Catholic groups or non-Roman Catholic groups who go on pilgrimage to Lourdes. French Tamil community in particular go kind of once a year and they have kind of made a connection with with Lords and with the Virgin Mary at, at Lords, and will go, you know, once a year in pilgrimage there. And they are, you know, they are tolerated, you know, welcomed with relatively kind of open arms by the local Catholic populations. I wouldn't say wholly for economic reasons, but the, nevertheless, you know, there must be an economic dimension to that. But it's also this sense of the shrine being, being kind of being for everybody and for anybody, and that people's journeys 
through lords and through lords are diverse and can be diverse and it should have something to offer it offer anybody who comes so what are some future things that you want to study about these uh, pilgrimage sites or about like you said the anthropology of religion okay so i mean one of the things that i have been i guess kind of struck by one of the things i've developed throughout kind of my work in the anthropology of religion is thinking about the extent to which Religion, which is something we tend to associate with kind of texts and books and, you know, the Bible or the Quran or what have you, is actually also deeply kind of emotional. It involves the senses, it involves the experience, experiential, it involves the body. So this is one of the things, I mean, I'm actually planning next year to, to go on on the Camino to walk. Um, I'll probably be walking for about a month, uh, you know, with people um, to to experience it myself, to get a sense of what that experiential, how, how religion operates at that kind of experiential level. What are you doing that? Good for you. I beg your pardon? Is it good for you that you're doing that? That's great that you're getting out there and experiencing these things and you could write a travel journal and it'll be a, a ton of things for you to bring back from that experience. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that it's one of the ways, it's one of the, in some ways, it's one of the distinctive things about the anthropology of religion that that it does tend to be kind of participatory in that kind of way that anthropologists will tend to join in with the practices that they're observing. Are you, when you go on that trip, are you going to have access to, you know, maybe at night, like write about your journey? You know, what if you do like a living travel log to people that know you and want to see what you're doing? You know, you send out an email like every day or every week on what the journey has been like. People could follow along. It might be really cool for you to do that. Yeah, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's part of my plan. I mean, the, the Pilgrim on Each Project has got a um, website of its own with blogs on it. So that's my plan is to, to kind of blog on a daily blog throughout that, that process, giving my observations and my kind of sense of, of how, the, how the experience of doing it kind of unfolds. And also, you know, thinking through, you know, other people's experience, deaf people that I'm meeting as well. You know, that's one of the things which is, I think, crucial to where the anthropology of religion is kind of at the moment. It's trying to gain that understanding of other people's uh, visions of, of the religious life, not just through talking to them, but also by by acting, joining in and getting a sense of how, how it works at, a, at an experiential level. It comes in part, again, going back to my work in Malta. I got very interested in statues. I've said that, you know, one of the things that kind of characterised and characterizes Maltese uh, religion, the Maltese religious world, is these saints' feasts. Each of those is oriented around a, a, a statue. And the most important part of the feast is always when the statue is taken out of the church and paraded around the village or the parish. As a kind of, in some ways, it's a kind of symbolic representation of the patronage of the saint, that the saint is looking after people. But it's also a deeply important kind of experiential event. And it's a moment when in a way, the statue moves from being simply a kind of work of art or a, a kind of an artifact which is held in, the, in the, held in the church throughout the year, moves from that to becoming actually animated, to having a certain power in and of itself. So it's a time when people's you know, prayers to the statue and prayers to the saint will be listened to more carefully by the saint. So there's an expectation that you know, during the feast when the statue is outside, it, it has more power, your prayers to it have more power, and so on. So it, become, it kind of takes a step away from simply being a representation of the, of the saint to actually being in some senses a kind of an instantiation or a kind of bringing into the present of the saint themselves. So you get a sense of the, the kind of power or the grace of the saint kind of being in the world in and of itself. The American anthropologist Robert Orsi talks about 
a kind of similar process in relation to, he's talking about Latin American migrant Catholics in the US and talks about artifacts, items like statues, but also, you know, amulets, prayer cards and so on. He talks about these as being media of presence. So media through which the presence of the saint, the presence of the the holy figure who's being depicted is actually in existence in the here and now. So it's not just a representation, not just symbolic, it actually has power. And that kind of sense of things being actually kind of in the world around you and people's experience of that and how people react and respond and engage at a kind of bodily and and at an experiential level, I think is absolutely central to, certainly central to the way in which I see Catholicism working. But I think it's pretty central to the way in which religious work, religion works kind of as a whole, that it works through people in, in engaging, through doing. Again, I think we, we tend to think religion, we tend to think books, we tend to think theology, ideas, but actually religion is a, a lot about doing as well. It's and, and doing kind of with the body in order to generate particular t- kinds, of ex- kinds of experience. Okay. Well, very good. When are you going to be going on the, uh, the month-long walk? How long until that starts? Uh, that'll be next June, I believe, yeah. A long, long time. Okay. Yeah. Well, very good, John. Where's the best place for people to uh, keep tabs on your work and to find out what you're doing? Where can they go? Uh, I guess the, the obvious place would be my website and so my web profile at the University of Sussex. So yeah, if you just Google John Mitchell Sussex, you'll 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 find that there. You'll find you know, links to uh, various publications and so on. Uh, there's also a link there to the Pilgrim Onics website, which is another place to see the kind of the unfolding of this, this this project on pilgrimage and economics that we're working on at the moment. Excellent. Well, very good, John. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.